Hello, 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 beautiful people. Welcome to another episode of Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host, Kara Snyder, and my job is to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout slow her down. So if you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back and making yourself cozy in the Vital Core Salon again. And if you're a new listener, welcome. This is the, the hang for the frazzled type A's out there, the imposters and the overscheduling addicts among us. So make yourself cozy, kick off your shoes, or I guess now that spring has officially sprung and we're a few days past the the vernal equinox, maybe it's time to actually put your shoes back on and take this podcast out for a walk because the days are getting longer, hopefully the weather is getting milder near you too, and you're just energized with this new change in season. I'm energized by today's guest. So... Last year, I think it was probably back in May, I got to tag along to a music conference with my husband Craig in Nashville. While I was there in Nashville, turns out Nicole Barcelona, who some of you might remember from way back in episode 8, and her Women in Music tribe were hosting a party. And I got to go. And while I was there, I met today's guest, Alex Cram. And we got to talking, and I recognized, I think within about 30 seconds, I was in the presence of a really smart and creative woman who's really thinking outside of the box a lot of the time. And it was it was really evident from the get-go, and I think I knew immediately that I wanted her to be on the podcast and asked. And then schedules and life and all sorts of things happen And finally, we got to sit down. I'm going to give you a little bit of background. Alex Cram is the Vice President of Global Brand Licensing for the Artist Services Division as part of big old Warner Music Group. At Warner, Alex and her team explore global consumer product branding and integrated marketing opportunities, as well as some lifestyle collaborations and retail strategies for the 360 artists across all of Warner's labels. So whether this is something like an original fragrance for Melanie Martinez or a whiskey for the Flaming Lips, she helps the visions that her roster of artists have as ideas come to life, which is so creative and exciting to me. And before that, she led the Cram Collective, which was a collective of industry professionals aiming to help entertainment properties and brand owners such as Awesomeness TV and HBO extend into the retail and lifestyle space. And before that, she spent over 10 years at Nickelodeon, where she was the VP of Lifestyle and Retail Marketing. So that means when you go to a Target and you see something that's branded Dora the Explorer, Alex probably had a hand in that. There's all sorts of other things that she's going to share. And for those of you who heard a bunch of jargon in that bio, fear not. Alex is going to break it down for non-industry types like me so that we can really understand what she's doing and what her work looks like. And how that overlaps with who she is as a person and this is a really inspiring episode because Alex shows up 
really honestly and really realistically. Especially as she's sharing how someone like her, an on-demand creative and a self-described bullish overachiever, can sometimes hit the stagnancy skids too in life. And she talks really plainly about how she turned it around. So again, thanks to Alex for being here. Thanks to all of you for listening. And voila, meet Alex. Hey, Alex. Welcome to the Vital Core Salon. Hello. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I'm happy to. Thanks for asking me to join. Cool. I have so many questions for you based on a conversation that we had, what, almost a year ago, half a year ago, back in Nashville. Yeah. And and then the stalking that I did to prepare for this interview. But I figured maybe for the sake of the listeners who don't know who you are yet, let's start off with you are the vice president of global brand licensing at Warner Music Group. So for listeners that are outside of the music and marketing spaces, can you break down what you do? Sure, absolutely. And I I don't fault anyone for not knowing what that exactly means or what that role entails, simply because it is a pretty unique and relatively new one for the music industry. Uh, I'm home to the artist services department at Warner Music Group. We're the only record label that actually kind of has all of these services in one place under one roof. And what that means is for all of the artists that are signed to our labels on a 360 rights standpoint, that means that we have the services here to help you execute against those rights. And so that tends to be non-music opportunities and more brand building opportunities to extend them beyond just their music, whether it's their VIP experiences they may offer in tour, their tour merch, their e-commerce sites and direct-to-consumer business, or in my world, their global brand licensing. That's what we're kind of here to do. So can you talk about what some of the brand deals that you're talking about look like? Because I know people usually can get a pretty easy sense of tour merch, right? Like a performing artist that you go see is out on the road, they're selling their albums, they're selling CDs at shows, they're selling t-shirts, things like that. And then, you know, the VIP experience, I think people probably understand. But when you're talking about some of the global branding deals, what does that look like? Do you have any examples that you can share? Yeah, for sure. So I, I myself had no idea what brand licensing was until I happened to stumble upon it years ago when I was kind of fresh out of college um, and it blew the world open to me and it changed my consumer behavior uh, as I know it to this day. I just can't shop the same because what it did was it kind of revealed the Oz behind the curtain in the sense that when you're buying a brand uh, and you think you're paying a premium for it, often it's a manufacturer that manufactures kind of everyday household things as well. And so the quality ranges and it's pretty different and all this person or this brand is doing is licensing that name or that brand out to this manufacturer to produce goods on their behalf. So I found that really interesting. And so how that translates into the music space is 
an artist uh, is known for their music, but often their name and their likeness is quite recognizable once they've gotten to a certain status. And in today's world, where all the platforms make it that much easier for them to engage with their fans, fans are thirsty and hungry to kind of consume the artists in terms of a brand and, and just engage with them even when they're off cycle. And so we work with third party manufacturers or brands out there that are already established to produce collaborative product to be able to offer that into the marketplace outside of the artist's own kind of ecosphere. So some examples, Grateful Dead is probably our biggest uh, brand. The band has been around for 50 plus years, and with that 50 years comes quite a deal of equity and what we call evergreen status. Their icons and their graphics are at this point extremely recognizable, even if you don't even actually know the band's music, which is what we're actually seeing today with the younger generation kind of adopting the trend of uh, legacy rock art and, and acts that are out there. You go to any fashion space and you'll see old school rock you know, band tees. But we take it a step further. We've done stuff with the likes of Alice and Olivia. We did a whole fashion line for women's that debuted right before Coachella uh, at Neiman Marcus with an exclusive runway event. And that did extremely well and was sold around the world. We've worked with Burton Snowboards and Dunburton uh, snowboards and jackets and bags. Um, so the, the variety and opportunity is pretty endless in terms of what the brand or the band can lend themselves to. It, but at the end of the day, it's got to be quite organic and make sense for both partners involved. Yes. As you were talking about this example with the Grateful Dead, like they have this 50-year-plus rabid fan base. But pitching them a Mercedes might not go over as well as pitching them or partnering them with Burton snowboards, right? Yeah, or a Volkswagen, for example, if you're talking cars. Yeah. You know, the brand, <laughs> the brand ethos extends way back. And in a lot of ways, they, uh, they were the forefathers of kind of grassroots marketing and influencer marketing and, and shared streaming services as we know it today. If you went to a dead concert, Back in the day, they allowed you to plug in your tape recorder into their main uh, sound system so that you could record the live show and take it home with you. And you were encouraged to share that amongst your friends. To get tickets to a show, you had to write in on a postcard and send it to their main mailing address to receive that. So they were very engaged with their fans and and the fans know it. So the fans that grew up with them that are now in their 50s plus and many of them quite affluent. Some of them kind of moved on in terms of elevating their style. And some are very much so-called deadheads that, you know, are, are kind of that old school hippie indie shopper. Uh, but we have a whole new wave and generation of fans that are getting behind the dead and they love it because, you know, it's something to aspire to in terms of legacy and, and they, they embody this ethos that's very earth friendly and kind of for the people and just jamming out. And it obviously helps that John Mayer is kind of the forefront of the band at the, at the current moment. Uh, but fans that, you know, are close to the band will see right through it. And you try to pair a Grateful Dead with Mercedes Benz. It's just it's not going to make sense at the end of the day. It doesn't work with the ethos, and, and we try really hard to work with the band and the artists to make sure that anything we do feels organic and authentic to both partners. 
And Alex, which channels are you talking about? Because I'm hearing things that can be done on social media. There's also TV ad space. And then there's experiential things. Are you working across all of those channels? Sure. We don't do too much in the TV space, only because, quite frankly, we don't really need to. Um, We're different from brand partnerships in the sense that we're not partnering with the band with a brand for an endorsement or a sponsorship, so to speak. At the end of the day, we want to create a physical, tangible product or experience. And so TV is not as relevant of a platform. Sometimes we'll have some supportive marketing through some of our partnerships via television, but the most engaging channels for an artist to connect with their fans are through their own, whether it's their own website, whether they're on tour or their own social channels. Um, But when we look to partner with a brand, we also leverage their channels as well. And so often that's at retail, in the store, on that brand site, on that brand's social channels and kind of marrying the message between both parties that are involved. Got it. Got it. Thank you for breaking this down. I know in your world, there's so much jargon and projects tend to get multi-tentacled and, and big. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to sort of give us some examples so that we can really understand the context you're coming from and the world you're dwelling in. Absolutely. And I, I want to ask, it sounds like you had a really formative shift around the time you got out of college that you said changed your actions as a consumer. Do you remember what that was and kind of how that led you to this work? Well, I mean, I think I grew up in D.C. I was born in New York, but I grew up in D.C. And I didn't know what I wanted to do after college. I was a classical studies major, which when people hear that today are are like, so how does that actually translate into what you do today? Um, And I studied classics because I loved the storytelling aspect of it. I mean, these are stories that have stood the test of time from the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Sumerians, and and they're stories that we still still tell today. So it's really laid the framework in terms of um, how we communicate and and translate emotion into spoken word and tangible uh, items, whether it's pottery or painting or whatever it may be. And so I knew that I wanted to be in some sort of creative capacity, uh, somebody that actually had influence on something tactile. I loved product. And I liked to shop, but I was never a big brand name person. And when you get out of school, and for me, I moved up to New York City, and I was fortunate enough to get a summer associate position at MTV Networks at the time, which is what opened the door for me in in terms of what production could mean beyond just television production and introduced me to the consumer products world. You're surrounded by that, you know, kind of typical stereotype of what a Manhattanite is. And I was surrounded by really extremely powerful and independent women, um, but were very much about dressing in a certain way to impress. And, you know, it's not anything that I knock them for because, You always hear the old adage that you dress for the role that you want to be in. But for me, who loves a bargain, I just never bought into the concept of buying into brands, which is funny since it's the core of my business today. (laughs) Uh, But 
um, I never could comprehend or, or justify paying several hundred dollars for a bag just because of the brand name or whatever it may be. And so as I started working in the business, I started to see that the same manufacturer of that you know, expensive brand name bag was producing Dora bags, Dora the Explorer bags. And it's out of the same factory in the same China. And you're working with the same people and the standards may be different. But at the end of the day, when you realize that the brand itself wasn't necessarily owning the development from concept to finish, for me, it helped me further justify my shopping behavior and not buying into those brands. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. We all like a little bit of luxury, but for me to be informed a little bit more in terms of what I was actually buying really changed things for me. Wow. This is so unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) So how do you look at purchases now? How has that shifted since, since that or has it? I don't know if it has shifted, to be honest. I think I've always loved a deal. Um, and <laughs> that definitely hasn't changed. I'm actually getting married in um, a month or two. And doing the whole wedding dress shopping thing, I realized very quickly, was just not for me. And I ended up finding like a pretty awesome deal. And I was super stoked on that. And so I don't think it's changed too much. I think, if anything... It's helped me get a better understanding of the brands that I do care about and what they stand for and the quality and and kind of um, has made me a better educated consumer, so to speak. And that was my very next question. And also, congratulations on the upcoming nuptials. Oh, Uh, thanks. I'm, I'm extra thankful now that I got on your schedule with one to two months before a wedding, you're starting to get into crunch time. Well, we probably announced we were getting married just two weeks ago. So we're crunching everything in. I'm a cram, so I'm cramming everything into quite a short period of time. You were so aptly named. Yes, exactly. But that's why I, I might have it might have all gotten the best to me and I'm a little under weather at the moment, but I'm I'm working through it. Nice, nice. I applaud your perseverance. <laughs> Thank you. And let's let's talk about being an educated consumer then, because I think women listening, I feel like that's becoming so much more important in this day and age, just culturally. How do the brands that we buy and we support, what are their views politically? How do they make their products? What are the effects of making those products? I think sometimes we really want to dive into that. I know I do, and I try to spend some time. How do you get yourself educated as a consumer? It's interesting. I think the more you dive into it, the more insane you can start to feel. (laughs) And the more you dig into the details, the less you, quite frankly, want to buy anything. I mean, I have secret desires to just like buy some land and build a commune and farm my own (laughs) stuff and but you know that's a pipe dream and it's not reality in terms of the modern way of living so it's a balance I think um it's worth looking into in in terms of when you're making big buying decisions you should definitely do your research but for casual everyday things it's a matter of reflecting 
you know, who you are with what you buy and what you wear and what you want that to represent. And I wouldn't overthink it, but I do think that we're facing some real challenges right now with the environment and kind of the fast fashion cycle that from a trend perspective we've moved into, um, which seems to kind of model the fact of, um, you know, the fact that we so quickly want to consume everything, even content, where our news cycle now is even a matter of minutes. I mean, it's so short. So our fashion cycles, you know, back in the day, it used to be that there were seasonal runway shows and designers would present their looks for the upcoming seasons and buyers would attend it. It would be where they could see the, the styles and they would make their purchases for the upcoming season. Now, you know, with the advent of social media where, you know, it's an incredible platform for small brands for them to kind of get started and put their product out there. But the demand is there and the turn is so fast that these bigger institutions at retail need to keep up with it. And so you have all these fast fashion guys coming out and they're on a two week cycle. And, you know, I'm guilty of it. Going to H&M and Zara, it's easy for a quick, you know, trend update to your wardrobe and it's affordable. But, you know, when you're changing over products within two to three weeks, because that's the consumer demand, that's what we've trained ourselves to become used to, it's really difficult to manage kind of the, the waste that comes out of that. Um, and so it's, it's kind of twofold. Um, and, and that's why I say, like, the more you get into it, the more it can drive you crazy. And I've certainly seen stuff behind the scenes that makes me r- want to run away from everything and, and, and kind of live off the land. But you have to be practical um, and invest in the, in the pieces and the brands that you know have longevity and kind of represent what you stand for. I love that you talked about kind of how easy it is to go down the rabbit hole and lose perspective on things and want to just pack it all in. And I'm glad you brought up that point because I think a lot of the women that listen to this show are type A women. And I am, I always say I'm a recovering type A at this point. Um, I'm not nearly the... New York finance professional that I was back in the day. And I've, I've, I've come to a more comfortable pace. But I, I do think there are a lot of type A women listening. And I also think there's a lot of perfectionists listening. And it can be really hard to keep two feet on terra firma and, and make a practical and realistic decision. Totally. I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, it's a balance. And I always say that balance isn't a destination you arrive to it's 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 a verb it's something you're actively continuously always striving to maintain and I think in this situation it's no different I mean there's the person that you have to present to the rest of the world and there's the person that you know you're at home with alone at night and that's a balance that you have to continuously strive to to figure out that kind of those two people and where they meet in the middle Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's easy to fault people that quote unquote have sold out. But I think being realistic, you know, all of us are selling out in some way. And I think it's a whole spectrum, right? Like, are we drinking the Kool-Aid and like going 95% into 
okay, I'm just, I'm, I'm not going to be an educated consumer. I don't care. I'm just going to spend money and dispose of stuff irresponsibly and just have no awareness of the impacts of my consumption or am I going to try to function closer to the other end and maybe shoot to be like 80 to 90% a good consumer, make the, make the solid choices on the regular that as best you can, but, you know, recognize that if you use a, a Ziploc bag instead of a mason jar for a week while you're on vacation, you're probably not the problem. <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean... <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with Amazon, you know, like, they're, they're taking over the world in many ways. And a lot of the product from a professional standpoint, what I have to deal with is just the sheer amount of counterfeit and bootleg goods that are available on that marketplace. But at the same time, as a, as a person, an individual and a consumer, the convenience of Amazon is there, right? And to your point, we all live busy lives and we all can't be perfect. And after a long day, if I don't feel like going to the store and I can get something delivered to me, guess what? I'm going on Amazon and I have a Prime membership and that's getting <laughs> delivered to me the next day. So again, it's just that balance. And I think that there's always extremes in both, in, in both buckets. And I try my very best to kind of see in the middle of those extremes because I can find myself going one way or the other for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think tangential to this balance point is you are a highly creative individual at, at work, I'm assuming. I, I guess, is that, a, is, that a, is that a correct assumption? <laughs> I try to be, yeah. <laughs> so I guess like one of the, one of the questions around balance that I really wanted to hear your thoughts on is how you balance energy, right? I mean, you are an on-demand creative. Like, it is required for your job every single day of the week and probably sometimes weekends and nights and other times too. How do you maintain that creativity? How do you keep that, that energy level balanced so you're not just burning out all the time? That's a good question, and it's one that I try to find the answer to on a daily basis. I do consider myself creative, but I, I do sit in somewhat of a unique role where I have to be both business-minded and creative-minded, and I'm dealing with creatives on a daily basis because I'm dealing with musicians who are artists, and there's a lot of emotion wrapped up in art, and when you have to put on the business hat and you have to also find a solution that addresses the emotion that's involved, it can get exhausting. And I also have my own personal creative opinions, but I also need to know when to silence those in an effort of kind of keeping everyone at the table happy. So I find that I need to take breaks every now and again, get a breath of fresh air, take a walk. Um, I go into what I call hibernation mode where when it gets too much. I just need to take a couple of days on the weekend and literally not talk to anyone and just kind of refuel myself and get back to nature and, and feel kind of, again, that firm ground. At work, I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by incredibly smart people who are super passionate about what they do and about music. And 
that's inspiring and that helps fuel the creativity because if I'm ever feeling stumped and want to brainstorm or just kind of shoot the shit, I can just walk outside my office and just start chatting with people because it's often when your mind starts to get distracted from the end goal that you ultimately find the solution to whatever problem creatively you were trying to tackle. So I think environment plays a really big key into that. If anyone is ever to walk into my office, they are often blown away by just kind of the sheer ambiance in here because my lights are down. It's pretty dark in my office. I have stuff everywhere. I mean, I'm in the product business, so there's product on shelves, on the walls, on my couch, on my table, on my desk. It's cluttered, but it's organized in my opinion. And for me, I look around my office to get ideas and inspiration. My colleagues call it my dorm room, and I'm very much comfortable (laughs) in the space that I work in. And I think that that's a big factor in, in, in all of it. So I think nourishing creativity is something that's really, I I feel like it's kind of, it's trending right now. Like, I feel like I hear a lot about it, but I, you know, it, it often comes in like across in like sound bites in terms of like five easy tips to boost creativity. If you're open to it, I'd love to kind of unpack a little bit more about kind of how you're fostering that, that creativity at work. And so I'm, sure. so I'm hearing, I'm hearing two kind of threads so far. One is just the power of going to other people that are in your office and, you know, whether it's casually coming out for a chat, are there questions or actions that you take to help even open up those channels of creativity and sort of start thinking about a problem differently? I wouldn't say that there's go-to questions I have. I think because the nature of creativity is uniqueness. It's not something that can be templated. So it's not like I have kind of go-tos, so to speak. I would say that, again, it's so fueled by emotion and passion that more than anything, when I go outside for a chat, it's usually just to either release that emotion, vent, or just present something visual and get someone's opinion on it Um, or just simply be silly. I I mean, I think when I get too wrapped up in my own head and trying to tackle a creative challenge or problem, I find myself getting frustrated and I don't like to feel frustrated or stressed out. So just walking outside my office and engaging with someone or talking to someone else about maybe something that they're trying to tackle will shed a light on something that I'm trying to figure out on my own. So it sounds like bringing almost like a playful vibe to things. And yeah. I, and I mean, I get that sense from how you describe your office as a dorm room. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have guitars hanging on the walls. I have Graceful Dead skateboard. And I've been known to just kind of ride that down the hallway to let off some steam. Not that I really know how to ride a skateboard, <laughs> but I, I move in a direction. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I mean, I, I think, if you were to ask a lot of my colleagues I work closely with, you know, they joke that when we're in meetings and stuff, um, I'm always moving or, or drawing or doing something. And, and it's kind of a running joke when we have offsites that I, I like to, you know, get up and do some squats just cause I think the energy going back to your point about energy, like energy isn't a static thing. It, it's something you kind of have to keep moving and 
the more uh, stationary I feel, the more stagnant I become. Yeah. So you must be a kinesthetic thinker like me. I guess so. I've never heard that terminology, but it sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I find when I am stymied with something or having trouble articulating something, you know, the best thing that I can do is get up, go for a walk, go, go in the kitchen, even just cooking. Like sometimes I'm like, all right, time for lunch. And I work from home. So even just the act of like, chopping something like sometimes I know like there's something I could easily just like quickly heat up so I could get back to work whereas taking a half an hour or an hour in the middle of the day and I know that sounds like a luxury to some people listening you know it usually means I work later at night (laughs) for having taken that time but just the act of chopping and doing something that's not in front of a screen and that I'm moving and that I can play some music and just you know, even be bouncing around my kitchen a little, even just for half an hour can sometimes then make the space for the solution that I'm looking for to come, you know, whether that's negotiating something with someone and thinking about how I can present that or whether it's a client situation that that I'm still just mulling over and, and kind of how to best support them in what they're trying to do. It's just that active movement just changes a lot of things. And I I have to laugh that your team jokes about you always moving or doodling or drawing something. And I remember back when I used to be in finance, I remember I had a boss that literally went nuts on me after a meeting and just was like, went crazy because I would doodle across the top margin and side margin of this notebook that I was using all the time and doodle, 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 doodle. And I didn't know it at the time, but that was how I was staying focused in a room and in a conversation. Just that much movement could keep me from just having being somewhere else and doing my grocery list in my head or whatever. And I remember like he just was like, if I ever see you do that again, like, I am going to go crazy <laughs> or crazier, I guess. And it was funny because I, when I took that away for a while, I really struggled to participate in meetings. I really struggled to hold my focus because it was like I just was like a cyborg sitting in a chair unable to move for that hour or two hours yeah. or whatever. So it's so funny just even the difference in like industry. Like, it's, it, nobody probably thinks a thing of it in your world. Again, I'm really fortunate to work in such a creative environment with pretty cool people and and the vibe is there, you know, which is a stark difference from previous jobs I've had, which certainly have been more relaxed than corporate finance or anything of that nature, but still had somewhat of a stifled uh, kind of feel to them. So, yeah, and I, I can relate on the doodling thing. I mean, I think it's been feedback that my parents have gotten about me since I was a kid from my teachers. <laughs> you know, grades would come back and it's like, oh, yeah, she's great, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, she's distracted and constantly doodling. But to your point, it's how I've always known to stay focused. It keeps my kind of ears and mind open to hearing all the information that's being discussed around me and being able to kind of input that my own way. Nice. A kindred, a kindred doodling soul. 
Yeah, for sure. Doodles and movement and all of that stuff. I mean, I'm big into meditation as well. And, you know, I, I when I talk to people who haven't tried it and they say, oh, well, there's no way I could sit still for that long. You know, my big response is always, well, meditation doesn't have to be a quiet, you know, stationary thing for me. I think movement in meditation is is a way to go as well. And for me, just hopping on my bike and taking a bike ride around the city and getting, getting lost in the noises and the surroundings helped me meditate in that respect, just kind of detaching the mind from all that noise that might be happening inside. I'm impressed that you can ride a bike around New York City and call it a meditative state. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm always so like hyper. Am I going to hit someone? Is someone going to hit me? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a really great greenway along the West Side Highway that I like, and it's pretty chill. Nice. Talk to me more about meditation because I'm I'm a fan as well, and I love hearing the different perspectives about how other women make it happen. So I'm hearing you have aspects that are moving meditation. Is that typically your go-to or do you have other ways that you practice? Yeah, I mean, I think meditation has been something that since I was a child has been pretty ingrained in my upbringing. Um, my mom used to sit myself and my two brothers down and she has really long hair and, you know, she would say, okay, be quiet and be still. And she would take her hair and kind of like try and tickle us with it and and she she would say okay if you move you're not a ninja well obviously when you're a kid all you want to do is be a ninja and if you moved or laughed or smiled or you know got ticklish she would say oh no you're not a ninja you got to go meditate some more come back and then we would do this every day and it got to the point where you could sit as a kid and not get distracted by these external kind of influences and so it was always something that was really important to me even as I got older and obviously there's times and, and there's days that get busy and you get distracted and, and you you find a ways to make it so that you don't do it um, but you can call it prayer you can call it meditation but at night for me I always carve out you know just a couple of minutes where I can sit in silence and, and kind of gather myself um, but for sure on a daily basis, you know, biking, moving meditation is really important for me as well. And then I also like to go, you know, to, there's a great place here in the city that does live music meditation. And I know it sounds like really new age, but it's super relaxed. There's no kind of philosophy that's bestowed upon you. It's just live jazz music, which jazz I find in and of itself can be quite meditative when it's, um, off the cuff and not rehearsed because the way music finds a rhythm, especially with each other's instruments, is pretty incredible. And when you allow your mind to tune into that rhythm, it kind of focuses and allows you to escape from all the other noise that might be cluttered in your head. How cool is that? Where is that, Alex? It's in the city right off, right off of Bryant Park. Um I'm so bad with names. Uh, I'll have to remember the name. But it's great. They do these monthly um, live music meditations. That's awesome to know. I'm totally going to check that out because when I'm in the city, I tend to float around that Bryant Park WeWork. 
So. Oh yeah, you should totally check it out. It's great, and it's such a great atmosphere and no pressure, nothing like that. And I love when when places make meditation accessible and and not high pressure or like you've got to be you've got to be like full Buddhist or full Zen to like show up and participate. So that it's awesome that that people are taking different spins on it. So people have options out there. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, meditation's huge for me. It, you know, I've been using Headspace and I think the, the former CPA and analytical mind in me loves like the tracking aspect because yeah. it keeps me honest and it's funny, I think, now that I've hit 500 days in a row or something. And because meditation wasn't something that came easy or or natural. I, I love the story about your mom. And I'm sort of like picturing my own mom. And I'm like, that would never have happened in like maybe 500 <laughs> lifetimes. <laughs> so it's it's something that I sort of have dabbled with pretty much since like high school or college. But you know, just in the last handful of years, really playing with like, how does it fit in my life and in what form and at what part of the day. Um, so I, I love that you give yourself so many options. I think it's I think it's important for for women to hear that, that it's not just one way of coming at meditation. Yeah. It's about it's the mind state cutter. No, Absolutely. no, yeah, it's not cutter at all. And it's just, it's something you can do, you know, start with a minute of doing. And it's just, it's just slowing down your breath, you know, inhaling and exhaling at a pace that just is more relaxed and starting to quiet the mind in whatever form or fashion that may come in. So I'm a big advocate of it. And with all the stress I've been dealing with in the last couple of weeks, I should be taking my own advice and be doing more of it at the moment. But we all make excuses. Yeah, and we all have real life happen. Again, it's like, where do we want to be on that spectrum? Like, there's who we aspire to be and who we see ourselves being. And even getting 90% there, 90% of the time, is is pretty darn good. <laughs> yeah, and let's be honest. Sometimes it just feels good to be in a rut, like... It's human nature and, you know, sometimes you just feel like, you know what, I need to be a complete like veg out status right now. I need to just be angry. I need to just be stressed out. And I think I find myself making myself guilty in those moments when I do feel that way. But I've had to learn that it's okay to feel those things. It's okay to be stressed out and emotional and frustrated and just to allow that to flow out of myself um, and not be worried about how that may be perceived with those around me and just let it come out because otherwise the more it's bottled and bottled and bottled, it'll just explode. So I- I've had to come to terms with that aspect of it as well. Well, talk, talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned your hibernation mode and for me, I do the same thing, and I call it being fantastically monastic, where it's like, <laughs> I just, I'm I'm done. I don't want to do anything that requires a lot of heavy mental thinking. I don't want to talk. I just want to be a vegetable. Yeah. And I I am also guilty of what you describe, of, of just 
kind of having that internal dialogue sometimes, like, is it okay to do this? Like, and feeling like I need to, to get some sort of permission or feeling some guilt about just, I mean, in all, in all honesty, just about being human, not being bionic, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How, what it's, helps you release? What helps you get out of that space of feeling guilty and just take that time? Um, I think it's been a, a, an evolution, uh, so to speak. I mean, I think, you know, when you're younger, you express yourself in different ways. When you're older and you have more responsibility and there's other people that depend on you for one way or another, um, it becomes harder to figure out how to express those emotions without creating damage or affecting people around you negatively. And I think I've always been very conscious of that. And in my role at work, in my role at home, I always find uh, that I'm trying my hardest to serve others and sometimes lose sight of doing what makes me feel good. And in recent years, I've become a bit more unapologetic in taking that time and just kind of shutting off from the world and making it not about anyone else, but making it solely about me and doing something that truly nourishes me. And, and that might be go for a hike. It might mean going, getting away for, you know, a day or just vegging out and watching dumb, trashy television, which I'm definitely guilty of. <laughs> um, you know, or it could be, I, I love clay and it's been a while since I've been in it, but that used to be a massive outlet for me just working with clay and, and doing something that was tactile. So there's different ways and, and I, I find that it depends on kind of how high the stress level is for me. Um, but ultimately it always ends up with me just kind of secluding and sequestering myself for a bit and not having to explain myself quite frankly. Got it. So it sounds like you're recognizing you need to take the break when you're, if you, if you look at things as a spectrum, like on one end, zero, on the other end, total burnout, where do you usually pull the ripcord? I mean, I'll be honest. I think in, in, in the last year, I've gotten closer to burnout before pulling the ripcord. And I think it's just because of the sheer amount that I've been trying to juggle personally and professionally. But the idea would be to not let it get to that point. The idea would be that I take my own advice and do more of what I say that I try to do, which is taking those moments outside of every day or, you know, once a week to find that time so that it doesn't get to the point where I just feel like I need to, to your point, be monastic for a complete weekend in the middle of nowhere with no communication with anyone <laughs> because that doesn't help anyone either at the end of the day. And if you're in a relationship or if you have people that depend on you, you can't just disappear. So that's something that I'm working on to not let it get to that point. What are the, some of the lessons that you've learned? Because I think a lot of women struggle with this, and I have definitely had periods in my life. I mean, I think most of my 20s were just cyclical burnouts, like yeah. over and over and over. And I mean, you know, I can think of really so many, like so many points in my career where I'm like, I just need a mental health day. You know, like the, yeah. the travel, the hours, the work, the juggling 
different and sometimes difficult personalities all day long, like inevitably, like would just compound and compound and compound. And then I would just need to get out and literally sometimes just like call in sick on a Wednesday because I'm like, I literally just can't function. I need to sleep. Yeah. Like I'm, bro- I'm almost completely broken. Like if I don't take this day by, by the weekend, I would be broken. Um, yeah. What are some of the lessons you've learned? Cause it sounds like you're, you're figuring this out for yourself as well. And I think a lot of women listening are too. Yeah, I think I've learned not to be so hard on myself. Um, I definitely like to overachieve in in different ways and have learned that it's okay to not have to do everything all the time at a certain level and just give myself a break and also allow myself to pat myself on the back when I do something I'm proud of because I, I do find that I don't always take those moments to celebrate the wins, even if they're just little ones and, and those little ones compound and they become almost more important than the big ones because they're the ones that kind of keep you going day after day. And finding the time to celebrate that is a lesson for sure that I've learned. I think also learning how to be a little bit more selfish and selfish has the word selfish has a lot of negative connotations, but I do think it's important again, to find time for yourself and and to do those things that really nourish who you are as a being so that you can be better service to others. And and that for me was a hard lesson to learn because I do consider myself to be one that's very giving. And it was a hard lesson for me to understand what it meant to take when people were offering to me. So those are those are some strong lessons that for me I've picked up over the years, um, and then I think what really kickstarted that was, you know, the understanding of what fear can do, and how crippling it can be, how it's a necessary construct in the exercise of humility, but if you let it get out of control, it will absolutely cripple you and stagnate you. And, and stop you from moving forward. And so understanding that fear was present in my everyday life and, what, and how it would actually come to life and how it would manifest and, and what it looked like was important so that I could cut it off or address it and, and manage that so as not to stagnate myself. So for women listening that are like, how do I even see how fear is manifesting in my life. How did you generate that perspective for yourself? Well, it was a long time coming and it involved a trip to Peru and some other kind of journeys inward uh, in the sacred valley of Peru on a two-week trip down there. But Catalyst aside, in terms of what kickstarted that revelation, because it, it tends to be a crazy story for most that hear it and then think that, oh, so I have to go, you know, drink cactus juice in Sacred Valley of Peru for me to see those things. And, and that's absolutely <laughs> not the case. I think at the end of the day, the catalyst was I had been at a job for 10 plus years, I had been in a relationship for over seven. And I knew I wasn't happy. And there were ways that I could make myself happy. And 
I wasn't a miserable person, but I felt stagnant. I felt myself just kind of not moving forward, not moving backward, just kind of reverberating in this gray zone that just did not feel comfortable and didn't make me feel good. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And, you know, I took a trip away, which allowed me to offer another perspective. And, and, you know, I think travel is massive and, and travel doesn't have to be international. It could be, you know, going into the next city that you live near, just, just getting a different perspective on things and seeing how different, you know, your way of life is compared to another's because that all helps round out the picture. And so for me, that meant a trip to Peru, but it would ultimately meant was, I felt so stagnant that I had to get away. Why is that? And and what are the motivators in keeping me in those spaces in terms of relationship and job for me not to move on? And for me, what I realized was that there was a fear there. And I consider myself a pretty bullish person, a pretty confident person and not one that's scared to try new things. But at the end of the day, you know, you live in New York City, you got bills to pay. It's terrifying to think that maybe you can't pay rent the next month or maybe you can't do X, Y, Z. And so leaving what's considered by most a, a really good job seems insane. But at the end of the day, you have to figure out what really motivates you. And it no longer motivated me to be in that type of environment where I didn't feel like I was learning new things and moving forward. And that goes for both my professional and personal situations. Um, and I realized what was keeping me in those places was a fear. And, and that fear was because I was scared if I was good enough. Like, would I be good enough for a new job having been at one for 10 years and not having tried something new? Would I be good enough in a new relationship when I've invested so much time you know, so those kinds of questions that you start to ask yourself seem crazy when you consider yourself a pretty <laughs> confident person, but it was a journey that I had to go on. And I realized that that fear was what was crippling me and I couldn't allow that to win anymore. Wow. Alex, thank you for opening up and sharing this because I, I think it's so important and I know a lot of listeners have heard bits and pieces of of my story and I certainly hit a return of Saturn moment kind of like you're describing where it's <laughs> like I've got to clean out the bad men in my life and I've got to clean out the bad jobs in my life yeah <laughs> and it's crazy because for everyone around me they you know they're like what are you upset about like what are you complaining about you have a good job your relationship is fine but that wasn't good enough for me anymore. And that was, that's what I started to beat myself up about. And that's what it be, I became really hard on myself with. And at the end of the day, I had to realize that I am good enough and I deserve better. I deserve, you know, how good I am with what's around me to be that good as well. I, like, if I had a tail, I'd be wagging it right now because I think what you're <laughs> describing. When I started Vital Core back in, I mean, officially in 2009, but I, I think I was slowly working towards it, you know, on lunch hours and like outside of day job for some time before that. And thinking that like 
the thing that would leave me really fulfilled in life was creating literally a vital core of healthy, energized, assertive women in the world and recognizing that a lot of people have that potential, but we're kind of sitting on it. And, you know, I think those were a lot of questions that like, even like old coworkers before I was doing this work, you know, would come to my office and like ask for a pep talk before a date or like, like, you got this, like, come on, let's look at what you have in your pocket. Like you've, you've got this situation. And I think, you know, for a long time, I struggled with the words. And I think some people think it's marketing or potentially hokey when I say it's really about living a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. And I think we, like, we all have a sense of knowing when we are or when we're not, right? Like, you knew you were not living a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy at that point in your life. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, change is really uncomfortable. It's scary. It's, it's something we don't always just jump into. It's something we're very cautious about. And we're creatures of comfort. So anything uncomfortable is going to be is going to be something that we shy away from. But at the end of the day, I truly feel, and what I've had to learn was that it's at that intersection of discomfort and change when really, truly great things happen. And that was what I had to address head on. And that was the signals that I had to learn for myself so that I don't get to that place again. Got it. So I'm hearing you kind of were getting this itch. You up and went to Peru. You maybe had a couple sips of cactus juice. (laughs) And it kind of opened things up for you. When you came back and your feet hit the ground again in New York, and you've, you now have had this vision of like, okay, I've got some big wholesale changes to make. What are some of the first things that you did, if you can remember, to really start making that actionable? So I came back to a pretty tumultuous situation in New York, which for me furthered justified, further justified my discomfort with the situation and ultimately became the impetus for me leaving. So probably within a week or two of me coming back to to New York, I decided to leave my job and had no clue of what I was going to do next. I also decided to completely overhaul my apartment, which I had previously shared with my now ex-boyfriend and decided that was done. So I pretty much (laughs) changed everything as soon as I got back um, and I had no idea what I was going to do or how I was going to pay my rent or what I was going to do. And all I kept telling myself in the process of this was, you know what, you're good enough. It's going to be figured out and you're going to make this happen. And, you know, whether you believe in the universe or whatever it may be, I do believe that when you put things out there, you can manifest them. And I put it out there and I wanted change. And I was finally, for the first time, jumping right headfirst into it. And 
it all figured itself out. (laughs) It's hard. It's crazy to say when I look back on it, I'm like, wow, that was nuts. But it put me on a completely new path. And what I realized in that journey was that I was surrounded by incredible people. I had built an amazing network of those professionally and personally who believed in me and wanted to see me succeed. And for the first time, I had to learn that, you know what, I don't need to do this all on my own. I have these people around me. I fostered these relationships and it's okay for them to be there for me. And it's okay for me to lean on that. And it was the best decision I've ever made. That's really powerful to hear because it can be really hard. And this leaning on people and like receiving help in the way that you're describing, it is definitely something that I am still working on as a human being and I know is a, is a weak spot for me. And I think... Also hearing you describe earlier that you're kind of an overachiever by at heart, what allowed you to take that help? Was it easy? It wasn't easy um, at the outset. And I think what I did was, if, for the first time, I started to not just communicate with myself, but to really communicate with the people that I loved and trusted around me. And their confidence gave me confidence and made it easier to move in the direction that I wanted to move in. And that was my family and my friends at the time, um, who today are are very much strong pillars in my life. And I think that that was really a crucial and important kind of corner that I had to turn was because I'm an overachiever, because I like to succeed and do things well. I always thought I had to do it on my own. Um, I love to collaborate. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm not one of those people that when you're working in a group or you had a team project would like want to run and do everything. I love working on a team and I love collaboration and brainstorming. It was more the personal decisions in my life. I had a harder time sharing. And I think that coming to that realization was crucial. It was crucial for me. And it made it a lot easier to realize that I'm not in it by myself. Got it. Got it. And so I think maybe a takeaway for people listening is recognizing who you can trust in your life and, and taking yourself as a perfectly imperfect human being to them and kind of being able to share what you're what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve. Is that Yeah, absolutely. did I hear you right? Yeah, totally. And it's interesting because going through that journey for myself, it very quickly made those in my life who weren't supportive stand out. And it it shifted my whole world in so many ways in that these there were people that I thought I trusted and could, you know, depend on and lean on who became very judgmental or, you know, quote unquote haters <laughs> because <laughs> I was doing something that perhaps they felt that they could never do. And and what that made evident to me was I had to I, I couldn't spend any more energy on that, that type of person in my life. 
Um, so, I mean, when I talk about a complete overhaul, it, it was a complete overhaul. Yes. In all aspects of my world. Yes. I mean, I remember when I was downshifting from finance, because I was in New York like you, and yes, the idea of, I mean, does everyone who works in New York have a have a daydream at one point or another of just like going into your boss's office and being like, I fucking am out of here. And then just like quitting that very day. Of course. But the realities are the rent and the cost of living in New York is prohibitively expensive for making a wild ass fantasy like that come true. And I remember like trying to think like, okay, I'm here in this like, you know, and I was a I was a CPA. Like I was about as like I was a first generation college student who felt really compelled like if my parents were investing a lot of their hard earned money for me to be the first one in my family to go to school, then I better not screw around here. Like do something responsible with yourself. And so I was like, well, good, bad, and ugly, you need an accountant. And I just had a natural aptitude for numbers and seeing patterns and things like that. And so that was the work that I did. And then there was a point where I was like, this work is not me. Like, I feel like I'm dressing up in a monkey suit and passing every day. Like, I am literally in the, the corporate closet. And getting to that place where I was like, this is not right, but I've got to figure out how to sort of strategically do this, even though I would love to just quit. And I think there was a a point where for, I don't know, probably about six months, I was like, the thing that I need to make this cutover possible is I need a part-time flexible job with health insurance. I was like, that's what I need. Like, I've got some money saved up that will give me a little bit of space, but I need a part-time flexible job in finance with health insurance, which even saying that now sounds completely ridiculous. And yet it helped me do what you described, like recognize where to invest energy in the people around me. And not just because they were giving me something, but... That was definitely a litmus test for those six months. When I said that to people and, you know, some of my more responsible friends or family members were like, who do you think you are asking for such a thing? You know, I just knew like, okay, they are going to go in the not supportive bucket and, you know, they are family or they're old friends, but I'm going to have to meter the energy I invest in this relationship right now because that is not helpful for me. <laughs> and totally. then and then the friends that were like, okay, I'm going to keep my ears peeled and my eyes open and, like, definitely, like, keep this in mind. And then some of them, like, you know, definitely introduced me to things that they thought could be leads and stuff like that, but were largely like, that doesn't sound implausible. And I was like, yeah, these are the people that I want to have play a bigger part in my life going forward. And a lot of them are still really great friends to this day. Yeah, likewise. But it is funny, like, these moments can really help parse that, right? Yeah, I mean, I had so many moments of 
oh, well, that's interesting. Oh, well, that's kind of <laughs> funny. Like, <laughs> there were just little light bulbs that would keep going off. And, and the, those little light bulbs that would go off started to light the way of the direction I should have been moving in. And I just followed that. And I, I just started to trust myself and take a chance on myself and go with my gut. But I imagine there were a lot of moments as you were like literally schlepping all your stuff between apartments and sort of like, okay, now I don't go to an office tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. I imagine there was a very different and pervasive kind of fear that trickled in at that moment. What was that like for you? It's interesting. I think that there was a different feeling, but... Oddly enough, I had gotten to the point where I was genuinely excited. I was genuinely excited to have this time back and to really figure out what it is I really wanted to do. I mean, I even considered going to a trade school and taking auto automotive mechanic classes because you like, like that'll pay the bills. <laughs> Well, and because I always had a passion for working on things and building things and tinkering. And it's like, maybe I could open an all-female mechanic garage, you know. I, so these like, little passion points crept up. And I, I genuinely got really excited about all the possibility. And what I was most fearful of, and this is where the fear came back in, what I was most fearful of was squandering this opportunity that I had carved out for myself and quickly going back to something that felt comfortable just because I felt like I had to. And I got approached with other job opportunities. And I was really fortunate and, and you know blessed that people thought of me. And again, I, I turned those down and people thought I was insane. But I wasn't <laughs> ready yet. I wasn't ready to get into another career because I know myself and I know when I commit to something, I'm fully committed. And I didn't want to sign on to something that felt half-hearted for me. I, I wanted to give and allow myself the time to breathe and explore and figure it out. And at the end of the day, I was like, money is money. And I may not have some for a while, but it won't be that case all the, all the for the rest of my life. It'll come back around. So let me not make that my primary concern right now. And I realize that most people can't be in that situation. And by any means, am I, am, am I not saying that that's something that everyone should go do? I fully understand the different situations everyone can be in. But for me at that point, my situation was one where if it meant racking up a ton of credit card debt just to live so that I could explore and take a chance on myself, then that was by all means what I was going to do. Nice. I love the, you were feeling the fear, but it didn't limit your actions. And I guess like, it sounds like this opened up a really big period of discovery for you, where literally you were thinking about things like, I could fix cars, I could go back to school and learn how to fix cars, just because I think it would be fun. What are some of the other things that you did in that period that you tried that that were just for fun? I I took care of myself. I traveled. I did a lot of travel. Again, I was just like, well, this is what credit cards for. I'll figure out the debt <laughs> thing later. Um, 
But I was like, what am I going to have this chance again? So I, I traveled, I explored, um, I started cooking a lot. I started taking care of my health. So I was going to yoga and I was, I was going on long bike rides and, and doing those types of things. Um, I looked into and thought about something in, you know, the coaching or kind of healer arena, mostly because I had people in my life that were coaches for me professionally and, and people that believed in me that felt strongly that was a direction I needed to pursue. So I, I mean, I explored that for a little bit and I, I went all over the place, quite frankly. I, I went back into my art. I, I went back working with clay and rented studio time and I was building furniture for my place. It was just all types of fun stuff that I just thoroughly enjoyed. And what did you learn from having done all that? I learned that whatever the next step was that I was going to be making needed to allow for that space to exist in my life. So I learned that I needed to be in an environment that fueled that and didn't stifle that side of me creatively and allowed me to have the flexibility in time and energy to pursue other things that were self-indulgent in, in some respects. Um, and so that meant, you know, I didn't want a nine to, I knew there were certain guide rules that I kind of created up for myself when it came to exploring the next opportunity. And I knew I didn't want to work in a really corporate environment. I knew I didn't want to be in a traditional nine to five. I didn't necessarily want a dress code, so to speak. Um, I just wanted to be able to express the individuality that I really grew to love because I really grew to really love myself in that period. And I didn't want to end up in a place where I was that brought me into this new situation where I was just unhappy. So there, there were those guidelines and kind of framework that I set for myself and that was the biggest takeaway. And that it was as if I was in the driver's seat and I was the one in control. And I was committed to whatever decision I made next. This is so hugely powerful. Because I think there are times in life, and I, I'm literally thinking of so many faces of listeners that I know that will hear this show and like are in the middle of a transition and it feels messy and it feels like, it feels like that moment. And I always go back to this and I, I forget which Indiana Jones movie it is. It's the one with the Holy grail. And there's this moment <laughs> where he's like standing on the edge and he has to take a step forward, literally into this big, like endless chasm and lean his weight forward and put his foot out as if he's going to take a step. And it's only then does the the ground sort of come up and like yeah. present itself under his foot. And I think there's so many moments in life when it's we don't know what the next step is. Or like I know there are certain people that I'm thinking of and clients especially that have gotten to this really successful pinnacle in their career and then are like, oh, this doesn't fit what's next yeah and I love hearing your journey and I think it'll be so impactful for women listening 
to be able to just hear like what it's like. Like it is scary and you might have to blow your credit card up <laughs> and your credit for a while. But like it it may not be forever. Like just give yourself some space to figure out who you are again and like what's important. And it's yeah, like absolutely. I don't think you ever would have come to that like just sitting in your apartment with a journal. <laughs> No, and it's really hard to find the time for yourself to arrive at these things when you're concerned about doing right by everything else in your life and everyone around you. And I was really fortunate. You know, I, did, I have friends who have kids who could never make that kind of decision because they have, you know, lives that literally depend on them. And I knew that at some point I was going to have a family and if I had the opportunity now to make sure that I really could figure it out before I had responsibilities for other people around me, then I needed to take that chance. And other people trusted me in business and personally, and it was a big question mark of like, why can't I just trust myself? Why not, Why am I not trusting my gut? And pursuing that feeling was everything. That's a powerful question. Why can I not trust myself? What helped you start learning how to trust yourself? Was it just taking these actions or was it something else? Yeah, I think it was taking those actions of realizing that I was good enough and and surrounding myself with people that helped me get to that point too, you know, where um, p- confidence that I could trust from a business perspective and personally where I would suss it out and I would say, you know, is this crazy? Is this something you think I could do? Do you think, you know, if I'm out of the industry for X period of time, that's going to be a hard time coming back? You know, these types of questions were all swirling around. And it's good to have a soundboard that you can bounce things against and hear different perspectives and, and, and that type of thing. So I think it was just one of those things that I had to work through. And I love that question, too. Like, having people that you can take the question, does this sound crazy to? Yeah. I think sometimes it's just important to ask that question and have the people around us that we can trust to answer it truthfully, right? Like it does sound crazy, but this piece of it doesn't sound crazy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for (laughs) a lot of the people in my life, if they were to ask me that question about them, I would be like, no, just do it because I'm <laughs> I'm that friend that everyone thinks is already kind of crazy. And so so what was a realization for me was I'm encouraging everyone around me to do these things and and I've definitely done crazy things in terms of leaps of into the unknown before that all of a sudden I was like well, how, at what point did that stop? Like why when did I stop taking risks and taking chances on myself? And I needed a, I needed that gut check and kind of slap in the face, so to speak, from the people around me who, for as long as they know me, I've been encouraging them to do those things. So I needed to have that mirror. And I think that people, you know, positive and negative interactions with people always serve as a mirror to yourself and offers a reflection that you can see differently with. Yes, it gives you something to push back against. Whether you agree or don't agree, it it always can help clarify. For sure. Oh, Alex, so much good stuff here. Uh, (laughs) 
Really. I, I so appreciate you being really candid about this because I think when I started this podcast, I didn't want it to be just talking to women about when they were able to put the bow on the situation. Like, oh, well, here's the five minute, like, perfect story. So I really appreciate you kind of getting down into the weeds with me and and talking about like what it was like when it felt brave and messy and courageous and unstable, like all at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy. I'm happy to. I mean, I live by that in in so many ways where I just like to keep it real. And I, I appreciate when people can keep it real with me. And I find it really difficult to be around those that wear that facade and that mask and can't have like a person to person conversation. So I think getting into the meat of things is is the important stuff. It's not the superficial surface things that anyone can do any day of the week with anybody. So I appreciate the opportunity for sure. Thank you. And you know, this show is also made by this small woman and made for other women. And now that we've gotten a chance to learn so much more about you, I wanted to ask you some questions about being a modern woman. And I guess I'd like to start with, how do you define that? I I don't know if there's like a one-size-fits-all for that definition. I think for me... I consider myself a modern woman and and what that means to me are the values that that kind of describe and uphold what it is I aspire to be on a daily basis and that's a woman who's independent but not ignorant of the need for others to be around me in my life to offer support and love and and care and and to be able to receive that when I need it. I think integrity is a value also or a pillar that I think is incredibly important to anybody, but especially as women in today's world. I think knowing who you are and not sacrificing that for anyone is incredibly, incredibly important and not always very easy to do. And I think being someone who understands fear and the role that ego plays in creating fear and reactions to fear uh, and having that awareness is also very important. And everyone has an ego and, and knowing where yours sits and what yours reacts to is is crucial when dealing with other people, especially in business that can be quite male dominated at times. Um, so I, yeah, I guess, I guess those are some descriptors that I would use to describe a modern woman because those are all things that I try to uphold on a daily basis for myself. Thank you. And I, I always like to ask that question because I think you're right. There is no one size fits all or, or, you know, we could go to the dictionary and look up modern woman and get one consistent answer. So I always like to to give guests the opportunity to talk about, like, the context they're coming from, especially as I ask the next question, which is, what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? 
I think having fun <laughs> and just living a life of joy. I mean, I think how you put it earlier in terms of what you set out to do with this whole endeavor was a really great way of describing describing what I'm trying to get across. I, I think that um, because we have to fight so hard as women in so many ways, business and otherwise, um, just to be on an equal playing field, I think that sometimes we can lose ourselves and lose the joy in it all. So I think giving, you know, more a shit, more of a shit about letting loose and, and having a good time and remembering why we're doing all of this in the first place, I think is important. And I think also being inclusive of other women and one another, because we are kind of all in this together. And, and especially with all the movements around like me too, and equal pay and everything that's, that has kind of risen finally to the surface to a, a level that people are paying attention to. I think it's important that we enact that on a daily basis and not step on one another to kind of be seen and to be heard. Um, yes. So I, those are, those are the kind of the, the ones I can think of top of my head. Yes. As you were saying that I was like, yeah, we can be feminists and also take a day off. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. We we can have some joy. You know, we can have a a big dose of joy with the struggle. Like we can we can be both. We can have both energies within us. Yeah, we can be emotional and we and still be serious like and be taken seriously. Like there's no reason to quiet those sides of ourselves. Nice. Thank you. Thank you for your perspective. And I guess I want to flip it. Conversely, what would you like to see modern women give less of a shit about? I think ego. And I think for me that goes for man or woman. But um, that kind of speaks to what we were talking about earlier in terms of stepping on one another. I think that evo, e- the ego can be a really damaging thing when you start to let your ego drive versus who you really are. Um, and it creates highly intensely emotional and stressful situations that in my opinion are just unnecessary. So I think if we could all just give less of a shit about our ego and how we look to others and just be the person we want to be instead of, you know, putting on these facades and going through the motions, I think, that would make a difference, even on a little little scale with with women all around. I think it sends out these really small ripples just out in the universe at large. Like really, when we're all just connecting to like who we really are and living from that place as opposed to trying to construct these facades and then buttress them all day (laughs) every day it's yeah I think like just the energy that so many people spend doing that and I mean I'm sure you and I are guilty of that in in ways that we're still unpacking I know in meditation there are definitely moments for me that are cringeworthy it comes to mind (laughs) as a word (laughs) where it's like 
you know, but that that energy, if it's if it's not being spent maintaining face, maintaining the ego, maintaining this construct all the time, like what could that energy be used for instead? And yeah, for sure. Like that's the kind of excitement that I think, you know, this notion of, of dismantling the ego brings about. Yeah, because that goes, you know, that that word or that phrase or that concept of dismantling the ego goes for any number of things. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying of trying to be the perfect person all the time, right? Like that, that at the end of the day is your ego talking. Like you don't have to be the perfect person for everyone in your life. And so if we just gave a little bit less about striving for perfection and stroking that ego side of things, then I think everything would be a little bit better off. And I think dismantling is, is probably a, an operative term there because I, I think it's not something we just like release, right? It's not no. something we just like meditate a couple times and, oh, I've figured my ego out. It's something that we're constantly deconstructing all the time in small ways, right? For sure. I think awareness is the key to that, right? If you're not even aware of what your ego is, where it lies, what it reacts to, what it creates in you, then there's no way that you can even begin to dismantle those things. So just even being aware that, hey, you're a human, you have one, is a big first step <laughs> that I think most people aren't even willing to take. Yes, good point, good point. And who is a woman that you'd like to thank or credit for their contribution to your world? Oh, for sure, my mother. Um, she's probably one of the most strong, confident, independent women that I know. And she put up with a lot throughout her life. And she was quite a trailblazer in her own right in terms of just paving a new path for her to take that wasn't either culturally how it used to be done or what was expected of her and she took chances she took risks and you know she gave everything to and still does to us as a family unit and always did it with a smile on her face like she's probably one of the most joyful people I know and can laugh at anything and still has such a sense of curiosity and wonder that I strive to be that on a daily basis Oh, thank you for sharing that. And the story of your mom turning you into a little ninja. I love that. <laughs> yeah, she's the best. Go, Alex's mom. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know? I mean, I think given that we're all women trying to do the right thing and do right by everyone while doing right by ourselves, I think at the end of the day, not being so hard on yourself is a big thing. And it's not an easy place to get to. And it's something that you're constantly working on. But again, it's that notion of balance not being a destination, but a, a verbal action that is one that you consistently have to enact, really, and move towards. Um, and so not being so hard on yourself and not taking things too personally. Um, never losing that passion for what it is that you do and what excites you on a daily basis just generally in life, I think is really important. Thank you, Alex. 
And if women listening want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way for them to do that? I, I keep up uh, Instagram for the work that I do. Um, but on LinkedIn, I, I tend to post pretty regular updates on the projects that have been completing that I've been proud of. Cool. Well, I will make sure that women listening have all the links to what you're up to and how to connect with you. But truly, this this conversation brought me a lot of joy. So I, I deeply, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule, especially with a wedding coming up. <laughs> and and really, it's it's such a joy and it's such an honor to to hear your perspective about things. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And thanks for welcoming me into the community. Yay. Well, I hope you feel better. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Sorry about all the froggy (laughs) voice and coughing. (laughs) We'll we'll have Craig cut all that out. But thank you again (laughs) so much for being here. All right. Thank you. this is Kara again. Before you dive headlong back into your days, I just wanted to say thank you again for listening. This is the little show who could and I have Craig Snyder helping me with production and Darlene Victoria helping me with post-production and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the high dials for the slick theme song that you hear. But this is the little show who could. This isn't some big corporate-sponsored podcast at this point. And it really depends on all of you listening and sharing. And for those of you who have expressed feedback, I want to say thank you. It's really such a fun, fun way to connect with everyone. And really, it, this wouldn't be a show without all of you listening. And I wanted to remind you all, New shows roll out the second and fourth Wednesdays of each month. And one of the best ways you can take remembering that off of your plate is to subscribe to the podcast wherever you most frequently listen to podcasts. So maybe that's Apple iTunes, maybe that's Stitcher. There's tons of other platforms. But subscribe to the show and it'll be delivered to you for your sonic pleasure. You can also sign up for the newsletter. Each newsletter is going to have not only the podcast, but you'll also find out about upcoming Vital Core events and updates from the 33K Task List Project and health and lifestyle strategy tips that make navigating and negotiating change to your foundational health habits easier. That is sort of my specialty. Can I make things easier for frazzled women? So if that's your jam, head over to levitalcoresalon.com. So L-E-V-I-T-A-L-C-O-R-P-S.com. Until next time, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down. <laughs>